Don't let your final farewell stir up family feuds. Welcome to Before You Go, a podcast brought to you by Texas Estate, Trust, and Guardianship Attorneys, Stacey Kelly and Keith Morris. Preserve your hard-earned legacy. Be in the know. Hi, welcome to episode two of Before You Go, uh, Things You Should Know. This is a podcast that's put on by myself, Keith Morris, and Stacey Kelly. We had a fantastic response to the first one, and so we decided to keep on going. And today, our topic's going to be guardianships. We're going to talk some specifics about what a guardianship is in Texas, the types, different situations that can lead to litigation of a guardianship, and also some specific case examples of guardianships uh, that are currently ongoing. We also picked up our first sponsor for the podcast. We're very excited about that. And so just giving them a little bit of, giving a little bit of information about them. Uh, the company is called Mindful Home Ventures, and they offer innovative real estate investment opportunities, and they're located in Austin, Texas. Their mission really is providing homeowners with the opportunity to sell their properties and provide win-win solutions and creative financing, creative sale opportunities, and uh, they help solve difficult real estate problems. They provide a white glove approach to real estate needs, and they use their expertise in both uh, homeownership, finance, and real estate to uh, help homeowners navigate the probate process seamlessly. They purchase homes as is, no closing costs. And uh, they offer multiple services related to probates as far as paying for attorney's fees at the closing, rehoming animals, purchasing vehicles, uh, biohazard cleanup, moving services, estate sales, and other things. So if you are interested in obtaining their services, you can email us either keith at texas-probate-attorney.net or stacy, S-T-A-C-Y, at texas-probate-attorney.net, and we can provide you more information. And uh, next week we'll provide, or uh, next time we'll provide a phone number and more contact information for them. But I believe it's www.mindfulhomeventures.com. So today we're going to talk about guardianships I mentioned, and one very relevant, very timely example and issue relating to a guardianship is the Janice McNair guardianship that's currently pending in Harris County. And Stacey's going to discuss that later but I'm going to turn it over to her to give you just the basics about guardianship in Texas. What guardianship means in Texas actually can be found in the Texas Administrative Code, which states that it is a legal process by which a court appoints a guardian to make housing, medical, and or financial decisions for an incapacitated person. That would depend on whether you are guardian of the estate or guardian of the person, which after Keith talks about how you set up guardianships, we'll go into the difference between those two. And one person can serve as both, or you can have one person be guardian of the estate and another person be guardian of the person, person and or estate. Incapacitated is obviously anyone under 18 is considered incapacitated simply by their age. As you go past the year 18, Guardianships are for people that are mentally challenged or for some other reason are incapable of taking care of themselves financially and or physically. So, Keith, I'll I'll let you start on how we initiate a guardian proceeding. Sure. So one really important thing that is paramount to being able to start a guardianship is obtaining a certificate of medical examination from 
a doctor. The preference, of course, by the probate courts and even the, the county courts that preside over these is that the treating doctor that's preferably a psychiatrist fill out the letter. Although getting the doctor's letter filled out by any person with a medical degree is, is fine, according to the code. It's a form that's used. Most of the counties have the same form and they can be found on their website. And you take that to the doctor, get it filled out so that they can opine about the nature and a degree of the incapacity of whichever person it is that you're applying for guardianship. So you get that doctors that are filled out. Once you have that, then at least in our case, we send a form out to our clients to have them fill out. So we have information about all the people that are required to receive notice. So that would be parents, children, nursing homes, if they're living in a facility and, and other relatives. And so that way, once the guardianship is filed, we're able to send out proper notice to people so they're aware of what's going on and can have the opportunity to object or to interject uh, depending on what the circumstances are. So Stacy mentioned there is there are two types. There's guardianship of the person and guardianship of the estate. Typically, guardianship of the person, at least in the cases that we encounter, is usually children that are special needs that age out, meaning they are still requiring assistance, still usually attending school, and their parents need, once they turn 18, to be able to continue to do the things that they've been doing as parents for the first 18 years of their life, making medical decisions to them, enrolling them in school, and things of that nature. So those are usually easy and common question that we get is, well, how far in advance of their 18th birthday do we need to start the process? And, you know, my answer usually is, I don't know, six months, five months before start getting the paperwork together, get it to us so that we can file it and have a hearing as quickly after their 18th birthday as possible so that there's no gap in the ability of the parents to make decisions. And so that's typically guardian of the person because these children don't have assets. They usually have Social Security, but the probate court does not have jurisdiction over Social Security. That's something that is regulated by the federal government. And so if their only assets are that, then then there's no reason to have a guardianship of the estate. And then typically the circumstances surrounding both guardianships of the person and the estate are usually elderly people who both um, are unable to attend to their daily needs, bathing, feeding themselves, taking their medication, things like that. And then also sometimes have significant wealth that needs to be managed because we hear this a lot, especially recently, they get themselves involved in scams. We had one probably a couple of years ago where the guy was giving tens of thousands of dollars at a time to his friend in Nigeria who was building wealth for him so that he could move to Nigeria and live like a king. His children were obviously very concerned when they found out that their dad was sending money overseas. And of course, the account that was allegedly being set up for his wealth building did not exist, nor did the, uh, the promise of the uh, uh, extravagant lifestyle that he was going to uh, live in Nigeria once he had paid the entire $200,000 that was required. So those are circumstances under which the guardianships are filed. I'll let Stacey talk a little bit more about the specifics of person and estate. I'm going to start this with the caveat that a court can limit some of the guardian's duties and powers depending upon the order that the court puts in place. Sometimes the court will decide that a ward can 
manage up to 100, a couple hundred a month, give them that ability. Those are called limited guardianships where the court reserves certain rights to the ward and allows them to um, still exercise some of their rights. In Texas, that happens if the doctor's letter says, doesn't say that they're totally incapacitated, but can check a box that says they're partially incapacitated and tell, tell the court which things they can and can't manage, right? Right. And gosh, almost every guardianship I've ever seen always allows the ward to continue to vote, which is kind of scary. Um, if we're totally incapacitated and we can't handle our own money, even $100. But that is one right that I've fairly, very rarely seen taken away from a ward. In Texas, guardians have a range of duties and powers, which can differ depending upon the type of guardianship. Generally, guardians are entitled to take charge of the ward, provide care and supervision, and consent to medical treatment. Guardians of the estate are responsible for managing the ward's finances and assets. If you're the guardian of both the property of the person and estate, then obviously you have total control or almost total control over the ward. Some of the rights and duties are outlined in the Texas Estates Code. It says that a guardian of the person has the right to physical possession of the ward and to establish the ward's legal domicile. That means sometimes wards are still kept in their home, depending upon finances. Sometimes they're in a facility, but it is guardian of the person that makes that decision and what is the best domicile for this ward, depending upon their needs. The guardian of the person also has the duty to provide care, supervision, and protection. So if a ward is in a nursing home and they're not getting proper treatment, that can come back on the guardian of the person. So you need to be checking on your ward. I think the courts say every, at least every 30 days, you need to be putting eyes on your ward. You also have the duty to provide the ward with clothing, food, medical care, and shelter. Now, if you're not guardian of the estate, then you need to get that money from somewhere. And we can talk about that a little bit later. The court will put in a management plan for a guardian of the estate so that you don't have to keep coming back monthly and asking for this money. Lastly, the guardian of the person has the power to consent to medical, psychiatric, and surgical treatment other than inpatient psychiatric commitment. We don't allow that in Texas. We don't allow you to put a award into inpatient psychiatric care. Now, that does happen sometimes, right? I mean, sometimes I had uh, that ward many, many years ago, uh, Daryl Washington, who, sweetest guy, was in uh, Vietnam, had some adverse side effects as a result of that, and in fact, had a crack pipe blow up in his face, so part of his face was burned. But every time I put him in a facility, he would escape, and I would frequently for a while, I always filled out a police report and did all these things to try to find him. He would go one of two places. Either he would get picked up by the police and be taken to uh, Harris County Psychiatric Center or one of the other psychiatric centers, or I would find him at University of Houston playing Frisbee with the uh, students there. So those are the two places I knew to look when he escaped from his residence. I was a guardian over Tammy Dewhurst, who is David Dewhurst, the former Lieutenant Governor of the state of Texas, I was her guardian for a while, and the court did order me to put her in a facility outside of Austin just because the other facilities weren't working and she kept disappearing. But 
normally it's going to take, you can't just do that as guardian. You have to get court authority to actually, actually do that. Yeah. And one thing we want to say about, Stacey was mentioning that you have rights and obligations as the guardian. I mean, this is a fiduciary position. This is something where you are subjecting yourself to liability. And not only that, but it's a duty that you put the needs of your ward above those of your own. And so people frequently run into problems with guardianship of the estate if their lawyer doesn't explain this to them over and over and backwards and forwards, which we do, Stacey and I do this all the time, and, and have a very lengthy conversation about what their rights and duties are. But sometimes they will not segregate expenses and things that are paid and end up spending money of the wards on themselves. And the court you know, will require you, and we'll talk about this more in a little bit, but they, you're required as a guardian of the estate to file a yearly accounting. And if they see something in that accounting that doesn't look right, then they're going to question you about it. And if you are spending the ward's money on yourself, that is a problem that will cause the court to either require you to repay the money, which is a very generous offer by the court, because theoretically they can remove you for doing something like that. And that could be the harshest penalty is removal and potentially a lawsuit. So this is not something to be taken lightly. You are basically being given the job of parenting in the case of being appointed the guardian in person, the estate of an older person, the old adage that you, you, know, you start out and you live life and then you start to decline again and get back to where you were as a child. You are essentially being appointed the parent of your parent or the other elderly person and have to do for them what you would do for a child that you were taking care of. Also laid out in the estates code are the duties and powers of a guardian of the estate. It's a little different than the person. Guardian of the estate has the right to possess and manage all the property belonging to the ward. You have the duty to collect all debts, rentals, and claims that are due to the ward. So if the ward owns property that's being rented out, you have a duty to collect that rent. You have a duty to pursue all claims on behalf of the ward. You also have the duty to enforce all obligations in favor of the ward and bring and defend suits by or against the ward. So many times uh, the ward, let's say he does have rental property and the renters aren't paying. You have the duty to file suit and to have them removed, foreclose on it, whatever that is, have them removed from the property. So you do need to be cognizant of that. And you know, if your lawyer can't do it, then you need to hire another lawyer that specializes in what those claims may or may not be that your ward has. And of course, the last one is to access the ward's digital assets, which is a whole new game out there now with the digital assets that we have. But Keith, do you want to talk about how sometimes these guardianships can lead to litigation? Yeah. And I just want to mention that in the event that I become incapacitated, I definitely want only you to have access to my digital assets. Okay. Erase everything. Okay. I will. So- there are a myriad of circumstances where guardianships lead to litigation, but the most common ones are some of the ones that are similar to the situations that lead to will contests, which we talked about briefly last time, and we'll get into a deeper discussion at some point in the future. But the most frequent case is 
their mom or dad has multiple children and and one of the children is really doing what they can to uh, to take care of the parent and then the parent does not have a power of attorney sometimes they do and sometimes it's insufficient but most of the time it's a situation where they did not do planning prior to prior to being incapacitated and did have a power of attorney and so in those circumstances you know one child files for guardianship and then the other child or children multiple decide that they don't like the fact that their sibling is going to have control over mom or dad's finances and or think that for some reason they're not qualified to have control over mom or dad's finances, either because they filed bankruptcy or because they think they're a poor money manager or something, and then they file a contest. And so then it's a situation where children are fighting over who gets to control the parent, at least that's how they view it, rather than viewing it the way in which we do, which is that it's a responsibility. As I mentioned before, it's a fiduciary position. It's something that should be considered uh, not taken lightly and considered an honor that, that the court is considering you to have the opportunity to manage the affairs of somebody else. Because, and I'll talk about this in a second, but when you become a ward of the state, at least of Texas, you have less rights typically than a convicted felon. So the legislature has established different procedures and it's it's affectionately known as supports and services to supplement care for someone who potentially needs a guardian in order to avoid a guardianship at all costs. And there are websites and articles and even some TV shows and I've seen recently one that where Texas was one of the discussion points. They're talking about how the courts and the lawyers are overreaching and everybody's trying to just do this because they want to take the person's money and we're trying to do this. I can't deny that there are probably circumstances where that happens because that would be foolish to suggest that in every circumstance that every guardianship and every court is acting above reproach. Although that as a lawyer in the state of Texas, that's generally my attitude. But I've been appointed a guardian. Stacy's been appointed a guardian. I did not view that as a money-making opportunity. I viewed it as a service that I was providing to the court. I was honored that they believed that I had the capability to manage this person's finances and make sure that they were taken care of and, and did took it very seriously. I think it's worth noting that the courts limit how much a lawyer can make or charge per hour when they are serving as a guardian in the situation where Keith and I are, that would be probably a third of what I bill normally on an hourly rate. And so I don't take it to get rich. <laughs> I, you know, I'm making a lot less than what I would normally make per hour, but I'm taking it because the court needs someone and they need someone with experience that they can trust. And so when a court reaches out to me to be that guardian, I will accept that. And trust me, I'm losing money on it. But as Keith says, it's an honor. The, the court trusts you to handle someone's affairs. And we frequently get appointed. And I know for a while there was a judge, I'm not going to mention any names, but that would, I got appointed pretty regularly in his court on temporary guardianships pending contests. So that is a situation where, as I described before, you know, the children are fighting over who's going to be the guardian. But because there are some immediate needs of the proposed ward, 
the judge decides to appoint a lawyer to be the guardian temporarily until the contest is resolved. And there were a lot of lawyers that didn't want to do it because they didn't want to get involved in the family squabbles and have to deal with that. But but I was willing to do it. And as a result, I had some website that was created where I was listed as one of the people I was called the devil and this, that, and the other. Mind you, in that particular instance, I went with two Harris County sheriffs over to the woman's house where her grandson was cooking crystal meth in her kitchen. And we forcibly removed the woman. And I don't, by say forcibly, I don't mean like we snatched her up by our arms and legs, but I'm saying we, we removed the grandson from the house and then removed the grandmother from the house and put her temporarily in a facility because we weren't sure what sort of damage being exposed to those fumes had caused. And of course, the family, the children, and particularly the parents of the grandson who was cooking the crystal meth were outraged that we had done this because apparently it's okay to cook crystal meth in the kitchen where your grandmother lives. Um, I was not aware of that, but they were outraged that we did this. And so, you know, I was called the devil and got all kinds of hate emails and phone calls and website created about me. I, I don't care. In fact, frankly, I think that's a badge of honor. I mean, I'm glad to be called those things because that means I'm doing my job correctly if I'm making them mad for doing my job. But yeah, I mean, those are the kinds of situations that we find ourselves in. And a lot of times, as I said, you know, there are some lawyers who just will, will not do it. And there are others of us who, in addition to being honored to be to asked to do it, also aren't afraid of the ramifications, which I'm not, Stacy's not. We've been appointed in those situations pretty frequently. So children and children against other children is one of the scenarios where a guardianship uh, ends up sometimes in a contest. The other one, also similar to a situation where there's a will contest, is the kids versus stepmom, where dad's maybe 20 years older than stepmom, maybe more. I mean, we don't know. And then dad's incapacitated and stepmom wants to have control over the money and the kids think that stepmom's a gold digger. So they want to come in and take control over dad's money so they can make stepmom's life miserable. One of the additional considerations in that circumstance that does not exist in the circumstance with children against children is that depending on how long they've been married, some or all of that money could be community property. And in that case, there's also a procedure under the estates code where the spouse can just be appointed the community administrator, which it's not really, it's like a quasi-guardianship, but essentially what the court determines is that, well, because this money that exists is both half yours and half theirs, you guys are continuing to reside in the same household, you're both eating out of the same fridge and the same food, that the wife can be in a position to just administer the community and not be subject to all the same restrictions that a guardianship would cause. And that sometimes that works. You know, in some circumstances, and Stacy and I tried a case probably, what was it, like seven or eight years ago, where the young lady got divorced from her current husband, and then within 30 days was married to a man who was at least 40 years her senior, immediately transferred the title from his BMW into her name, and transferred a bunch of other stuff into her name. And we represented the granddaughter, filed a contest, and sought to have her removed. It went on for a period of time. And one mistake that the inner, we'll call her the interloper, who is the wife, made was that she frequently posted things on Facebook. 
And uh, right before trial, we received a gift in the form of, and I guess she didn't think that any of us spoke Spanish, received a gift in the form of a post telling the world that she and her one true love had been reunited and that they had gotten married on New Year's Day or something like that, or New Year's Eve. But coincidentally, she was still married to the elderly man. So now she is not only a liar and a fraudster, she's also a polygamist in the state of Texas, which as I last time I checked is still illegal. So prior to trial, we took this post from Facebook and we took it down to our local Kinko's and blew it up on six by four foam board and covered it up with paper. And then once we started the trial, we took the paper off and left it behind counsel's table within the eye shot of the judge. And I immediately saw her face go red. And once we got the young lady on the stand, we started asking her questions to the point where she had to plead the fifth because she was subjecting herself to criminal liability because she had to admit that she was married to two people at one time, which was against the law, and some other things that she had done as far as transferring stuff that that she had lied about and perjured herself and this, that, and the other. And so that uh, ended up going in our favor, as I believe I remember. And uh, she was exposed for the scummy little opportunist that she was. So we have those circumstances. So just like everything, you have people with good intentions, wives, stepmothers, maybe who had been married to the father for 20, 30, 40 years, and the kids just don't like her. Well, that's not really her problem or his problem, and just wants to continue to take care of her husband because that's the way that it's been done. And then you have circumstances like the, the last one we described, where the young lady comes in, and gets married to the older guy, and starts transferring all of his assets to herself. So, you know, those are the circumstances that we run into. As we sort of mentioned earlier, the legal rights of a person under a guardianship will vary depending on what the doctor's letter says. If the doctor's letter says that the person's partially incapacitated and they have the right, the ability to do certain things, vote, which is something that we occasionally find frightening that um, some people who don't have capacity still can vote, but they can sometimes, depending on whether or not they have the ability to operate a motor vehicle, how much money they're able to manage, if any, what parts of their daily activities they can manage on their own, can they take their own medication? Can they do all these things? All of these rights can either be terminated or retained by the ward, depending on what the doctor's letter says and what sort of testimony is elicited at the guardianship hearing. And then the judge will be making the determination as to how restrictive or how unrestrictive the guardianship and the rights and duties of the guardian are and what the rights and that are retained by the ward. So you were going to get into, we talked about contests and what happens, but I mean, how are typically in most circumstances, how do guardianship disputes get resolved? Many times they get resolved by family settlement. If you can get a good mediator or someone who understands the system to drill down and figure out what the contest is really about. Why do you not want your sister to be guardian? because she doesn't give me any medical information. She's been taking care of mom for two years and I don't know anything and I can't talk to the doctors. Well, you can do family settlements that require the guardian of the person to make sure that other siblings have access to mom's medical records. You can agree that, look, I'll be guardian of the person, you be guardian of the estate, but I'm going to be able to see the the bank records. I'm going to be able to get online and look at 
where things are being spent. I'm going to be able to have a say in where mom lives. Anything you could think of to settle a dispute, it's only limited by the party's imagination on what will make each party happy. So settlement agreements are a good way and they resolve most of cases. And this one thing to mention is that when people come to us with complaints about, oh, I'm not getting this or I'm not getting that. I mean, if you are, have been taking care of a parent and you are applying for guardianship, total transparency with your siblings, unless there is a security issue, like you have a sibling that has been, you know, stealing from your parent or whatever, being transparent with your other siblings is always the best policy because that will diffuse any distrust or suspicion if everybody knows, okay, so here's, we're paying for mom, uh, here's mom's doctor, here's mom's diagnosis, here's what's going on with mom and letting everybody know, I mean, you don't have to do it on a regular basis, but at least if one of your siblings asks, hey, how's mom doing or where the doctors say, you know, hiding that information from them or how much money does mom have in her account, preventing them from having access to information, at least to me, seems counterproductive. And that's a good majority of what causes these disputes, right? Right. And depending upon the parties and their good faith, a lot of the cost of setting up this guardianship comes out of the ward's estate. And the longer people fight over this can have adverse effects on the amount of the estate that's left. So it's much better to try to resolve your issues early on Disputes can also be obviously resolved by litigation, which I would not recommend that if at all possible. I always tell people, let's try to settle so you know what you're getting and we all know what the landscape looks going forward. And then the third is a court appointment. And Mm -hmm. I've seen this happen a lot where brother and sister are fighting over guardianship and the court just says, you know what? We're not going to waste the ward's money. We're not going to do this any longer. And I'm just going to appoint an attorney that I know will do a good job and will keep all of you informed and we will go forward with that. I've been appointed on that. They complained about my fees and the judge, we had a big hearing on it and the judge was slamming his fist down on the bench saying, look, you guys should have sat around the kitchen table with donuts and coffee and figured out how you were going to take care of your mom. But you guys were too immature, too whatever, too dug into your position that you couldn't do what's best for your mother. So I'm going to take it out of your hands. I'm going to make this attorney the guardian so that we can stop all this fighting right now. I mean, it's an expensive process. It's not cheap. No. You know, there's a mental capacity issue. And that usually involves doctors and doctors testifying. And they aren't cheap. I mean, one of the biggest things that we tell people in the case of a will contest, like you're fighting over something where you're going to get money, right? You're going to get paid if you win. In a guardianship contest, unless you're a narcissist that control equals the same dopamine rush as getting paid, there's no financial upside to you to be the guardian. Really, I mean, what's happening when you get appointed is you're not going to get compensated I mean, you get compensated some sometimes, depending on the circumstances, but it's not like you're going to have some huge financial windfall. It's not like you can go in and change your parents' beneficiary designations to leave all their money to you. You're 
taking on an obligation and a responsibility, and it's somewhat a thankless job. So looking at it from the lawyer's perspective, sometimes, and you can disagree with me if you don't agree, but sometimes I look at this and I'm like, well, first of all, why would you want to be the guardian? And second of all, if you are the guardian, then this is an extra response. You're taking on another child, essentially. You can't just stick mom in a home and not pay attention to her. Like It requires at least weekly intervention, if not sometimes daily, to be able to manage and care, make sure that all their bills are paid and things like that. So it doesn't make sense sometimes to us when people are fighting about it because we know what happens after whoever appointed gets appointed. It's a lot of work and you're not going to get compensated the way that you think you should be compensated for the amount of work that you're doing. I mean, right. Would you agree with that? Oh, I agree a hundred percent. Yeah. I mean, just what two weeks ago I had a potential new client come in and their thought process when they came in was I want to be guardian over my sister-in-law. Their brother had just died. I want to be guardian over my sister-in-law and, and, take on her care. And I was like, well, first of all, you don't even live in Texas where she's located. I said, so that doesn't work. But even if you did live here in Texas, I said, why would you take that on? Let's get someone else in there that knows what they're doing, you know, have the court appoint someone and you just watch it. And you're doing the same as being the guardian. You're putting one in place. Yeah. And I mean, I talked them out of it. And I think once we talked about it and discussed the duties and everything, they, they fully understood this is not something I want to do. Yeah. One really interesting situation that's occurred, and we sort of teased this earlier, and I want you to get into it, is there are a lot of high-profile situations where wealthy families fight over control of a parent for one reason or another. And, and one such instance that's occurred recently is that uh, one of the children of Janice McNair, who is the owner of the Houston Texans, has filed guardianship in Harris County for her. And I know that the record is sealed and so the information is limited, but there's nothing wrong necessarily with discussing what that the impact could be and also probably some level of speculation about what it's about. So what are your thoughts on that? Well, I mean, as you've mentioned, I've looked it up. All probate matters are online in Harris County and it looks like on December 4th, one of Janice McNair's children, Carrie, filed an application for guardianship over Janice. And I'm assuming that he had a doctor's, a physician's letter to initiate it, or the court would not have initiated it. So somewhere he was able to get a doctor or a medical practitioner to fill out this doctor's letter and say that Janice McNair needs a guardian to some extent. Again, we don't know if that was full or partial guardianship, Immediately on the same day, Janice's other son, Daniel, filed an emergency motion to seal the records. And his affidavit is online. And it mentions the fact of the different McNair entities that the McNairs have, who sits on boards of those entities. And it looks like Carrie must have filed some financial information when he filed the application for guardianship, because Daniel was complaining about that in his affidavit and saying that Carrie has access to financial information and that he is putting it out there in the public realm by filing this application. And so that's the reason why Daniel wanted, I assume, this is the reason, one of the reasons that Daniel wanted this sealed. 
it could affect the Texans and that organization. And he believes, I think rightly so, that that doesn't need to be played out in the public. That is a internal family situation going on. And obviously they're going to have to get into finances if it's guardian of the estate. And quite frankly, you and I don't need to know that. We don't need to know the McNair's financial situation or who's fighting with who or who's having affairs. I mean, it can get really ugly in some of these things. And I'm not saying anyone's having an affair at all. But there are just so many instances where it could be detrimental not only to Janice McNair, but to the organizations on which she owns and she sits on boards with. So it looks like most of this is going to be played out in sealed records, and we're not going to hear much about what's really going on in there. I'm sure people want to talk, and perhaps Carrie or Daniel will talk to a reporter to try to get some information out. But it's going to be an interesting to, one to watch to see how it's resolved. Um we don't know if there's powers of attorney in place. Did Janice McNair execute a power of attorney in favor of one of her sons or the other or someone else? And if you've issued a power of attorney on behalf of someone and they're your agent, it's possible she gave them all kinds of powers to handle this situation and that she doesn't need a guardianship. Right. She's already designated someone. So we don't know if that's the situation or not. So it, it'll be interesting. I don't know that we'll ever find out much. This case is sealed in stark contrast to something that everybody's familiar with, which is the Anna Nicole Smith case, which played out in the public. And, you know, we have the uh, uh, famous uh, screw you rusty line. I remember when that was going on that, you know, pretty much every night on the news, you got like the daily report with some video snippets of what happened in court that day. And it played out over a very long period of time, multiple years. And frankly, as salacious as some people believed that, that situation was, it really wasn't any of our business. And just in the same way that what is going on with the McNair family, their finances, their inner family squabbles may need to be decided by a judge, but really isn't something that you know needs to be scrutinized by the public. Um, it's to be something that, at least in my opinion, is handled privately by the family. So- Glad to see that the court yes. sealed that. I agree. You want to discuss some of the challenges that you have when you're administering a guardianship? Yeah, I mean, briefly, I think we mentioned this earlier, you know, like, for instance, in the case that I was handling where the crystal meth, I mean, sometimes you have to go and figure out where your ward is and rescue them from their current situation and then take them somewhere safe. Sometimes safety is an issue. Sometimes people have stolen money from the ward. You know, in the case of the guy giving the money to the Nigerian, obviously we don't know if he was actually Nigerian. We don't know anything. And the money was gone. I mean, the FBI was contacted, this, that, and the other, but they can't do very much. And the pervasive nature now of scams, especially online scams, is so rampant that we, it's once you sort of get sucked into one of those things, it's very hard to kind of get out of it. And the likelihood of being able to recover money back is very small. But there are other circumstances where sometimes children decide to loan themselves money without their parents' permission, and you have to go recover that money. I mean, we've, I've had instances where it wasn't necessarily a guardianship, but I've defended people in adult protective services actions where money has been taken 
were loaned and felt a little bit like the loan was not a real loan and and you have to sort of account to either APS or to their guardian about what's happened. And so those are some of the challenges. I mean, it challenges by for us as attorneys with our clients is that when you are guarding to the estate, you have to keep every receipt because as we mentioned, you have to file a yearly accounting with the court that tells them every dollar that's come in and every dollar and not even dollar, every penny that's come in, every penny that's gone out. And so we reiterate all the time to our clients, hey, you need to save the receipts. You need to make sure you keep the receipts. You know, we'll give you a folder with the months blocked out in it so that one of those folders that has the pockets, just take every receipt for January and stick it in January to the extent that you can give those things to us on a regular basis so that we can start working on the accounting now so that we're not at the end of the year scrambling because once the year ends, you have 60 days to file with the court. We don't want to scramble at the last minute trying to figure out, well, what is this receipt for and what's that for? So, I mean, frankly, and I'll pose it to you. I mean, that is usually one of the biggest challenges, right? Doing the accountings and getting all the accounting records straight, especially when there are multiple accounts. Absolutely. I can't remember. Maybe there's more, but I do know of one court. As soon as they appoint the guardian of the estate, they give them one of those red wells that has all the months in it, and they hand it to them, a brand new one, and say, here, this is how you need to handle it. I mean, the courts are very helpful. Yeah, especially in the circumstance of guardianship, because the judges have to post bonds, and at least in the, the statutory probate courts, and actually, I think, depending on where you are, and we ran into this problem down in Corpus Christi, even judges that are not statutory probate judges, meaning it's a statutory probate judge is a dedicated court that only handles guardianships and estates and some trust issues. Sometimes it's a county court and we ran into this issue down in Oasis. And just for the sake of not making anybody mad, I'm not going to go into it very far, but the judge was presiding over a very large case, but was not to the extent that we could tell bonded for that. And so the event that the judge did something wrong, the parties have the opportunity to go seek recompense from the judge on his bond. And that option was not available in that case because the judge hadn't posted one. So the judges are very interested in making sure that not only because they are public servants who are tasked with protecting the wards, and I would say of the statutory probate courts, that is the court's highest priority, um, is protecting the wards under their charge for the reasons that, you know, just as being the judge, making sure that people do things correctly, but also they're sort of the ancillary issue that they could be held liable in their bond. Well, let's recap. We've discussed how guardianships get initiated, how they work, what's the likely conclusion to a possible contest of a guardianship, how to challenge a potential guardianship, and how to protect the rights of the ward. I think it's very important to have an understanding of guardianship, which is you are taking away someone's rights. And Courts loathe to do that. Most human beings should loathe to take away someone else's rights. And so when the court is looking at this, they are always looking at the least restrictive alternative. So if you've got powers of attorney in place that will cover the situation, the court's probably not going to appoint a guardian. You're going to have to show the court that somehow the documents in place are not sufficient to protect the ward person and or finances. 
you know, you can have a trust, right? You can have a trust that provides for to take care of the monthly expenses of the ward. And then you don't necessarily, assuming that every asset that, that person has is in that trust. And depending on who's managing it, they may not need a guardian of the estate because they have someone that's taking care of and making sure that their bills are paid, especially if it's a bank, right? Right. And we can, we'll definitely get into that when we talk more about estate planning and have Marvin on here to talk about some of the documents you can put in place ahead of time to so that you don't have to be fearful that you will be the subject of a guardianship down the road, that you've put everything in place so that it's going to, your final years are going to play out the way you want them to play out, not how some court or child or cousin or nephew has decided. So I think that the important takeaways for today, and I don't want it to be lost on the audience, that a guardianship is the last option, right? I mean, it's the thermonuclear option, right? It's if, if at all possible, you want to have anything you can to prevent that from happening. And like Stacey said, we're going to have one of our colleagues on probably regularly to talk about sort of the estate planning aspects of the topics that we discuss. And we'll discuss in detail about what you can do to sort of prevent this from happening. But I would love it to live in a world where we didn't have to have guardianships or in other states are called conservatorships because it is very restrictive. It does put the onus on people, regardless of how much you explain to them what their rights and obligations are, it is very difficult to sort of follow and jump through all the hoops. That's one thing. And we do them regularly. We're happy to for people to call us and ask us advice about it, just like everything else. We're doing this podcast, as we mentioned in the first episode, as a service to try to provide information on topics that people at large think are difficult to understand or don't really get. And we want to be able to shed some light on those things. And hopefully this has shed some light on on guardianships. I'm sure we will have another episode later talking about different aspects of guardianships. But I think this has provided a good overview of this particular topic and giving you some real world examples as to to what circumstances would necessitate and what would likely cause uh, one to be created. And so final thoughts, Stacey? Well, I think long and hard before you try to initiate a guardianship or try to contest one. Talk to your parents, talk to your elderly family members, see if they can put things in place so this doesn't become an issue. Look at trust, look at, there's a document called designation of guardianship. If you need one, who you want to be your guardian, who you don't want to be your guardian. It's a serious prospect. The guardianships, they're Again, you're taking away someone's rights. They no longer have those rights. And it's something to be taken very, very seriously. Yeah, I agree. And about those declarations, people have come to us before and said, oh, well, I have this. So now I can just be a guardian. It's like, well, no, 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 no. Slow down. That is evidentiary. Okay. It is a clear declaration by the person of their preference. But you still have to go through the procedure of filing all the documents with the court obtaining a doctor's letter and getting a judge to declare that the guardianship exists and that you are the guardian before you are. It's not, it's just like I said in the last episode, a will is just a piece of paper until a judge says it's not. A declaration of guardianship is just a piece of evidence until it's used to establish a guardianship. It is not a document that you can carry around with you and present to a doctor and say, see, look, I'm the person's guardian. They declared me the guardian. So yeah, I mean, I think my final thoughts are I echo what Stacy said, which is it's a serious prospect. Do whatever you can within your family to resolve any 
disputes about transparency, medical care, finances, whatever you can do so that it can stay within the family before engaging an extraordinarily expensive process, even just an uncontested guardianship is probably going to cost you somewhere between five and $10,000. Contested guardianships, people ask us all the time, oh, was it, what is it going to cost? I'm like, well, start at zero and then the, the meter keeps on running. And like I said, sometimes there are situations where the attorney's can get reimbursed or the the client can get reimbursed for their attorney's fees from the guardian's estate. But why do you want to do that? You're taking money out of that person's pocket to either fight a serious situation, serious grievance that you have, or sometimes, and you know, I would say 50% of the time, some petty argument that exists between you and your siblings about, I don't like the fact that you do this for mom or you take her gambling or whatever it is. And you're just taking money out of your mom's or your dad's estate, which is unnecessary. So just think long and hard before doing it. So we are thankful again to have the opportunity to present this podcast to you. This is episode number two. We're going to keep doing it because we really enjoy it. We've got a lot of good feedback. We are not entirely sure what the next topic is going to be. But as soon as we know, we're going to post it on all the social media that we've been posting the podcast and the snippets and stuff on. So farewell from Keith Morris and uh, Stacey Kelly. And just remember that before you go, there are things that you should know about estate planning, guardianship, wills, and trusts. Thank you. Thank you. Now, before you go, learn more about how Stacy and Keith can help protect you by calling MK Legal or visiting us on the web. Links to our website and phone number are in the show notes. The information on this podcast is for general information purposes only. Nothing on this podcast should be taken as legal advice for any individual case or situation. This information is not intended to create and receipt viewing or listening does not constitute an attorney-client relationship. 